Please turn with me and your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Uh, Titus chapter 3. In a moment, we'll read verses 1 through 7. And as you're turning there, I just want to say, I don't think I do this enough, that uh, I enjoy our church family. I enjoy this gathering. I love Sunday morning with you. I love this music. I love our singing. I love our praying. I love that it takes us a minute to quiet you down before we can even sing the first song. (laughs) It's a wonderful thing. And I love, most of all, your love for the Word, your allegiance to it. And so let's look at it together today again. Titus 3, looking at verses 1 through 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. For more than 20 years now, Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas, has been distinguishing itself as a global symbol of hatred and bigotry. But here's the strange thing. The ministry began in 1955 under the leadership of Fred Phelps. He believed in a way similar to us. He believes that the Bible is the Word of God. He regularly preached repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And he vehemently led the church to fight against the moral decay of our nation. And if I were to stop it here, everything sounds pretty good so far, right? If anything, it seems a little inconsistent. How can this particular ministry be marked by hatred and bigotry and hold to such biblical distinctives? But it's this last point, this fight against the moral decay that set them apart more than all the rest. In fact, the church grew so intolerant of sin that they all out declared war on every form of immorality and rebellion against God. It was a formal declaration of war. It started mainly in June 1991 where they initiated a picketing ministry in their church. If you're not familiar with that, that's when people take signs to protest against things. They would protest against the sins of their community and the nation, and they would do this via signs and chants. Sometimes they would picket the funerals of homosexuals, holding signs like, God hates, I'll let you fill in the blank, due to a mixed audience, I'm not even going to say the word. They also assembled against the funeral of fallen soldiers, American soldiers, with signs like, thank God for dead soldiers, thank God for IEDs. Supposedly, in this last effort, they were in support of God's judgment against America for its adoption of unbiblical and immoral policies. But this notoriety, this hatred, was largely confined to Kansas, Topeka area, until World AIDS Day on December 1st, 2009. And it was at that point that their hatred exploded into national, even international prominence. Megan Phelps Roper, the granddaughter of Fred Phelps and the unofficial social media coordinator uh, for the church, 
tweeted, Thank God for AIDS. And she used the hashtag red for all the world to see. It was here that their belligerence went viral, irreversibly associating Christianity with contempt in the eyes of millions of non-believers, and they've held on to that reputation ever since. How do ministries like Westboro make you feel as a Christian? Do you think that they should be denounced for their bigotry? Celebrated for their bravery? Or maybe just ignored for their stupidity? Such displays of cruelty and contempt regularly tarnish our collective, our reputation with the world around us. Of course, I don't think anybody in this room would do any of these things that I just listed. But people who believe and preach in ways similar to us do these things. They're like that foolish family member who shames everyone with the same last name. They're like that disgraced politician who throws the entire political party into question. What do you do with them? What do you say to someone whose harshness directly contradicts the gracious gospel he claims to preach? Would you confront it? If so, what would you say? This is only part of the problem. See, I'm confident that we know better. There is something about these previously mentioned behaviors that sends your conscience into overdrive, saying things like, wrong, no, stop, please no, why? But here's the question. What then should be your disposition to the world around you? It's one thing to say, it's not that. It's something else differently to say, it should be this. See, the truth is, every one of us have been given by God relationships with sinful and unbelieving individuals. He has placed them. God Himself has placed them in our path. He's placed them in our family. He's placed them in our social circle, our workplace, our classroom, our sports team. And we have a couple popular strategies, I think, but I'm not sure that they quite line up with the biblical paradigm. Popular strategies probably fall into two camps. On the one hand, you've got what I would call a protection policy. Avoid the unsaved at all cost. You know what? If we don't want to offend them, if we don't want to say anything that's going to hurt their feelings, why don't we just isolate ourselves in a Christian bubble and make sure that we don't have to interact with them? I mean, necessary interactions with the world, with sinners, are kind of like a visit to a leper colony. You, you go through, you get out there as fast as you can, you don't want to have any conversations, you just do what you've got to do and you get back to the Christian compound. In and out, speak if you have to. That's the antagonistic, I mean the protection policy. On the other hand, you've got the antagonistic policy. That is... Um, Someone who's probably not as harsh as the Westboro Baptist, but is someone who regularly leans into conflict so that they can fight for the truth. They're militant. They confuse social warfare with spiritual warfare. They equate faithfulness with fighting. Christian crusades against corruption. Someone who's always on the lookout for opportunities to advance the Judeo-Christian moral agenda especially in politics and on social media platforms. Which one are you? Which way do you err? Maybe you're a little of both. Maybe you're somewhere in between. Whatever your historical posture toward the Christian outsider... I want to challenge you this morning to contrast it with the one that Paul presents for the believers on the island of Crete. 
You'll remember that Paul writes this letter to set the church in order through Titus. Remember, there were some things that needed to be finished so that these churches could take off in the direction that they needed to go. And the first main thing we saw several weeks ago was leadership. You needed the right kind of leaders in the church. You needed men with exemplary character who were effective with the Word. Alright, that makes a lot of sense. But the the plan didn't stop there. It didn't stop with leadership. It it actually continued past chapter 1 into chapters 2 and 3 with the responsibility of the church members. So if the churches in Crete are going to properly influence the world around them, yeah, the leadership would have a role to play, but more specifically, more significantly, the, the people within the churches would have a role to play. And so those gifted leaders, those qualified leaders, would have an obligation to actually teach and talk about, and preach in such a way that the people would know sound doctrine, and then that they would live in a way that accords with that sound doctrine. Does this make sense? It was gospel concepts and gospel conduct. That's what they were supposed to lead them in. And for the last few weeks, we've looked in chapter 2, and we've seen our internal responsibility to put the gospel on display. What I mean by that is our, our personal behaviors personal character, and our relationships with one another within the church, this is one of the means by which we will resist the sinful culture from the inside. But that's not all. It's that here in chapter 3 where things take a significant turn, and Paul begins to take his focus from the inside to the outside. So we've answered questions like, how do we behave in a way that befits the gospel among one another? But now, here's the question in chapter 3. How do we behave in a way that befits the gospel for those who are not yet believers? To those who aren't in our church? To those who actually resist the gospel? This is where Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives his strategy for dealing with the outsider. And the text presents it simply. It's going to sound a little too simple. But hearing it's easy, doing it's hard. You ready? The strategy is simple. We must be kinder Christians. It almost seems anticlimactic. Well, that's it? (laughs) Really? Kindness? Be a kinder Christian? It's easier said than done for sure. Because of our dispositions, some of us to stay away, some of us to engage and fight, Kindness is a different direction altogether. And so, thankfully, God's Word tells us not only to be kinder, but it tells us how we can go about doing this. And it's really simple. I think you'll enjoy this today if you're taking notes. We just need to remember three things. And the first is this. To be a kinder Christian, we need to remember our obligation. Our obligation. You see that in verses 1 and 2. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, I'll pause here for a moment that continues in verse 2, but this is really clear for us. It doesn't just happen. There's a clear responsibility of the church to be, by the church, that needs to be embraced. There's something that they need to understand, that there's a role that they play in this thing. And so, Paul tells Titus to remind the Cretan believers of these obligations, implying, and here's the implication, that that they already knew what they needed to do, but they just needed to to remember it. (laughs) He doesn't say command them, he says remind them. Actually, keep reminding them. It's a present active imperative. I don't think I'm, I'm blowing anyone's mind this morning by saying that God intends for you to be a kinder Christian. But how easy it is to forget about it. The kindness here is expressed in a couple of ways. Verse 1 shows us our civil obligations. Verse 2 shows us our social obligations. You see the civil obligation to be submissive to, to order or arrange yourself under the leadership of rulers and authorities. 
These are synonyms. For anyone in government, from the emperor all the way to the tax collector, from the president to the police officer to the policymaker, these are the people that you submit yourselves to. These are the people that you arrange yourself under. And notice this, just in case you think this is just a formal thing, he says, and be obedient to them. (laughs) It isn't just acknowledge their authority, but it's actually do what they tell you to do. Oh man, this would have been such an easy command to forget, would it not? I mean, think about the Cretans themselves. Paul has already characterized them in chapter 1, verse 16 as evil evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is a a self-centered group of people who want to do their own thing. Uh, They're they're bestial, they do their own impulses, They, they don't like anybody telling them what to do. And then we also know from previous studies that there was a high concentration of Jewish people on the island. And if you know anything about the Jews down through the histories, they do not like any form of pagan control. (laughs) So this command is, or excuse me, this reminder is like especially poking them in the eye, if you will. They would have a special penchant to disobey, to do their own thing, to not like whoever was reigning over them. And you know what? They could have even taken the Bible itself and tried to use it to justify their natural prejudice toward authority. Remember what was going on at the end of Titus chapter 2? Remember that wonderful capsulation of the gospel in which we see in verse 13 that Jesus is described as our great God and Savior? I said it quickly, but I want to bring out again that phrase, great God and Savior is one that was popularly used in that day to describe the emperor. It was what was in the headlines. This was how he himself wanted to be known. And so now, here, Paul says, you know what, your great God and Savior isn't a political ruler, it's actually Jesus himself. Now, how could they have used that for their advantage? Well, if Jesus is the political ruler, therefore I don't have to obey the political rulers over me. And Paul says, no, no, no. You have an obligation to obey those who are in authority over you. There is a civil obligation here. It's one that you have to honor. It's one that you have to remember. And then notice this phrase at the end of verse 1, to be ready for every good work. This is where he begins to turn his focus from the civil to the social. Good works here, or being ready for good works, is something broad. It it has something more to do with our our social good. And he starts to denote what these social obligations are in verse 2. Look at it. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now again, this would have been an easy command to forget. These are self-centered people. They want to do their own thing. They operate typically in self-interest. You know, our culture is no different. It is so easy. It's so easy to be kind to the sweet older ladies who bake you goods and bring them to church. It's so easy to be kind with that person in your small group who has the exact same number of kids as you do and who votes the same way you do. It's so easy to get along with the one who likes the same sports team as you. (laughs) Like, be kind to those people. That's kind of what we hear. But notice here, he's saying, look, I want you to be kind generally, not just to any particular group. What about that obnoxious neighbor? What about that family member who flaunts their sinful lifestyle in your face? What about that perverted co-worker? Be kind to them. Be kind to them. How are you obliged to respond? Well, he presents it with a, what I would call a prohibition and a promotion. He prohibits a couple of things. You see a negative. Paul does this a lot. And then he promotes a couple of things. You see a positive. You notice the negatives there? To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. Speak evil of no one. All right, this is easy. It means that you don't get a free pass to damage, discredit, vent, or slander because someone was rude or mean or selfish or sinful to you. You just don't. No one. No one. It's pretty inclusive. So Justin, what about liberals? Yeah, no one. <laughs> I'll be more serious here. What about homosexuals? 
no one. What about a transvestite? No one. What about a Muslim? No one. He not only prohibits speaking evil, but he also says, avoid quarreling. Avoid. Stay away from fighting or arguing in the social sphere. It doesn't matter if it's at the water cooler or on Facebook or across your dinner table at the holidays. He says, do what you can to avoid quarreling with people. Now, I know what you're thinking. Justin, are you telling me that we're not supposed to engage people with the gospel? Listen to me, please. This isn't a Christian thing. This is a logical thing. Everybody knows that there is a difference between discussing and arguing. I remember reading a book on logic a few years ago. This written by some guys at Cambridge. And they actually delineated like the, the different ways that we communicate to try to persuade they said that level one, like the best way to communicate is what they called persuasion dialogue. It's just when there's a true conversation between two individuals. You know what the lesser forms were? Again, this guy's not a Christian who wrote the book. Debate, formal debate, and then even below that, arguing. There's a difference. There's a difference between having a calm, civil conversation, between speaking the truth in love and arguing. Slandering. He's not prohibiting the speaking of truth. He's not prohibiting the advance of the gospel. He's just curbing gossip and slander. He's saying, look, you don't get a right to talk bad about sinners. Notice what he promotes. There's promoted social obligations as well. Positively, be gentle. Be gentle. Uh, I'm quoting the lexicon here. I'm not taking any liberties. The most noted Greek lexicon of our day and here's what it says yielding tolerant and then this was in an interesting definition not insisting on every right of letter or law or custom here's what the opposite would be you ever learn that way sometimes i want to hear the opposite the opposite of that would be uptight strict rigid hard and cold all right, now let me give you the opposite of that, just to make this more socially palatable. To update this for our culture, he's commanding Christians then that they have an obligation to be easygoing, gracious, warm, and friendly. Simple question for you. And I'm asking this very seriously. Would the non-Christians close to you describe you in those terms? Do they perceive you as cold and hard and stern? Or do they view as warm and friendly and open? There's another promoted social obligation. You see it at the very end. And it kind of summarizes it all. It says, to show perfect courtesy to all people. It's closely related with the other words. It speaks of humility and meekness and consideration of others. I mean, when you hear the word courtesy, what do you think of? You think of manners. You think of being polite. It's a long story, and I don't have time to get into it. But I have taken a manners class, and I have taught a manners class. <laughs> you know what's interesting when you get into like, the formal study of manners? You know what the, the bedrock of the manners issue is? And even unsafe people acknowledge this. It is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is a biblical thing. And what Paul has in mind here isn't just wiping your face at the table or not burping. He has something bigger in mind. He, he wants you to think in terms of the outsider. Like, what's a way that I, I could do good to them in a way that I would want them to do good to me without compromising my faith? I mean, the sticking point here is that our social obligation as Christians has a remarkable depth and breadth that we're just not used to. Notice, he says to show, and literally, this is what it says in the Greek, all courtesy to all people. All courtesy to all people. Do you see the depth and the breadth of that? 
we're obliged to be deeply kind. Serving others in whatever way we can. Yeah, we do this civilly. We pay our taxes. We pay our taxes. It's that time of year, folks. We pay our taxes, just letting you know. We, we obey traffic laws. We follow building codes. To deny our civil obligations would be to harm the reputation of the gospel. I tell you this uh, in, in shame, but it is a rather funny story. One time I was working in Prattville, Alabama. It's a little suburb outside of Montgomery. I was a youth pastor there. And I would drive down sometimes on the weekend to go see Tanya in the panhandle of Florida. Well, it was a long and boring drive, and I just really didn't care that much for the speed limit. I think it was like 60, and it was just wide open roads, hills. And I, it was a Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. I'm like, who's out on a Saturday morning at 8 o'clock? I need to get down there. And anyway, so I decided to go like, I don't know, 75, 78. I knew they'd give you a little leeway, right? You want to follow the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. <laughs> well, needless to say, you, you know where this is going. I remember getting pulled over by the officer. Uh, he was very kind. And I was, man, I was like, I was turning it on. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you letting me know, sir. And I, I thought that, you know what? Since I'm being so nice to this guy, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the gospel with him. <laughs> And we had these horrible tracks. I like our little business cards, but we had these horrible tracks at that little church I was working at. They were like a yellow sheet of paper, sloppy, like John 3.16 on the inside. And anyway, I was like, officer, thank you so much for giving me this ticket. I know I was wrong. Here, would you take this? And I had my church's name on it and everything. You know what he did? He said, I'm not, I'm not going to take that from you. You know what he wanted? He didn't want my manners. <laughs> he expected my obedience. If I wanted to be a good reputation for the gospel, I probably would have kept that track in my pocket in the first place and just obeyed the traffic laws. It's so easy for us to think that we have a better way. We have a better way of doing the work of evangelism. He says, you know what? Look, Cretans, as you're here on this island, I know that there may be some corrupt officials over you, but you do everything within your power to obey them. And everybody, I know there's like 20 of you out there who are saying, well, what if they ask me to do this? And what if they ask me to do that? Listen, if you ever do have to disobey the government, it better be for conscience and not convenience. There's a huge difference between the two. But he says, that's your obligation. This is what you must do. I mean, like, I'd put it just as plainly as I can. Don't be a jerk. Don't do it. Positively, be nice to people. I know you, you hate that you had to hear that today, you know, like you already knew that. But again, reminders. These are reminders. <laughs> and I need to say this as well. Mere, passive, mere passivity to outsiders is not fulfilling the obligation. We have to actively show kindness. He's not just calling us to neutrality, but engagement. When was the last time that you invited a non-Christian into your home? When was the last time you bought them lunch? When was the last time you offered to help your neighbor when you knew that he needed some help? When was the last time you baked something or brought something to encourage some kind of non-Christian? My friends, I say this with all compassion. Beware of the Christian bubble. It's suffocating. It will put out the fire of evangelism in a heartbeat. To paraphrase Jesus, what good is salt in a shaker? What good is light under a basket? There's not just a depth of kindness, but there's a breadth. We're obliged to be broadly kind to all people. This breadth is essential, not incidental, to our mission as Christians. Our Lord said it this way in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 47. Hear these words again. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, 
and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Do you see the logic? Jesus is saying, what good is it for you just to show love to people who love you? He says you should particularly be on the lookout to show love to those who don't love you, to those who dislike you, for those who hate you. Jesus uses the term enemies. In our pacifist, tolerate culture, we don't typically think of ourselves here in the United States, at least, as having enemies. But I do like an updated term from the anthropologist Susan Harding. She calls this, or informs us that we all have what is called a repugnant cultural other. The repugnant cultural other. What she means by that is every one of us have people in our life who line up on the opposite sides of us on all the important issues. And the question here is, are you showing kindness to them? So when I talk about a repugnant cultural other, we're talking about the other view of gender and sexuality. We're talking about the other view of the origin of life. We're talking about the other view of politics, the other religion. Practically speaking today, some of us may need to leave here and go and repent to the face of someone that we have been unkind to. One of our RCOs, one of our repugnant cultural others. Say, I have not demonstrated the gospel in a way that the Lord has commanded me. Please forgive me. And if you're here today and you have been affronted by a Christian with this kind of harshness, this meanness, this insensitivity, please, on behalf of us all, forgive us. This is not what Christ intended. It does not, by the way, though, abdicate you of your responsibility still to repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus. So we've seen that being a kinder Christian requires us to remember our obligation. Our Lord expects us to put them on display, but here's the problem. We struggle with this, don't we? It's not like we don't know what we're supposed to do. But we need help on knowing how to fix it. I mean, what's the solution? Do we just get out and grit our teeth and try harder? Do we post a sticky note on our mirror this week and saying, be a kinder Christian? I think the Lord has a superior method for us. Yes, we must recognize our obligation, but we also need to remember our situation. We need to remember our situation before Christ. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You know what Paul's doing here? He's reminding the believers on Crete that they all used to be the repugnant cultural other. He details the depravity of man and he surveys the inherent sinfulness of man to elicit our empathy. Empathy. Four. You see it there. It makes a strong connection from those first two verses to this one. And the pronoun here is strongly emphatic. For we ourselves also. This this is what we used to be. This is how hard we used to be to get along with. These are the notable features of our spiritual backstory. Every one of us in this room. And I know some of you claim to have been saved at an earlier age in life. What I will say to you just as clearly as I can, every one of these things existed in you in seed form. They just didn't have time to grow up yet. What's said here is true of everyone in this room. Self-included. What is it? Be really quick here. We were foolish. It means dumb unintelligent, stupid. He's not referring to our IQ or our SAT score or our GPA, but he's talking about our knowledge of God and His expectations for us. We didn't know what to do. Not only were we dumb, but we were disobedient. We were defying God's law. Even the things that we did know to do, we didn't do. We disobeyed. 
We were led astray. We were deceived. We were duped. What we thought we knew was wrong. And this one's tough. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were dominated. I don't know if you remember that, but but you and I both used to be dominated by our emotional impulses. A term that I would use is animalistic. That's the difference between human beings and animals. We used to be like animals. We, we ate whatever. We drank whatever. We had sex with whomever. We comforted ourselves however we wanted to. Apart from divine governing power, we just couldn't control ourselves. So even what we did know, we, we couldn't do. We were unable And this radical self-interest led to being hated by others and hating one another. Do you notice the passive, active contrast? We were so self-centered that nobody liked us. I wouldn't say nobody. Your mama liked you. (laughs) A lot of people didn't like us. And we didn't like a lot of people. Actually, that's too weak. It says hated. It says hated and hateful. Self-interest caused us to be this way. And so, what is this walk down memory lane supposed to do for us? Supposed to walk out of here just feeling miserable and depressed? No. The walk down this dark lane of our memory is to elicit empathy. Sympathy. Have you ever grown frustrated with someone who didn't know how to do something that you think they should know how to do? If you're an employer or a parent, you know this very well. It happens. New guys come on the job. New kids get raised up through the house. And there's just some stuff that you just think is so basic that they should just get it. I think the clearest example I can think of in this regard would probably be children learning or needing to learn how to tie their shoes It's such a time-sensitive task. Because what's typically the last thing you do before you're going to get out of the house? You're going to put your shoes on. Well, you just assume that the kid knows how to put his shoes on. And as much as you tell them to do it this way and make the bunnies and, you know, cross it over, they still don't get it. It's frustrating. And it happens multiple times per day. Especially when you're on your way to church, I've noticed. Why can't you tie your shoes? The parents, so tired of teaching this lesson over and over again, hope that the teacher will somehow bail them out and teach the kids how to do it. Or some parents just give up and buy Velcro shoes. But then they realize Velcro's just not cool at nine years old. We've got to teach the kid to tie their shoes. Why is this such a frustrating process for us? Why is it like it just gets to the core of us? Why are we so frustrated? It's because we've forgotten the four stages of learning. Maybe you've heard this before. It'd be good for you to remember there's four stages to learning. The first one is unconscious incompetence. By that I mean your kid didn't even know that he was supposed to know how to tie his shoes. Second phase, conscious incompetence. Well, now they know that they're supposed to be able to tie their shoes, but they still don't know how to do it. They know that they don't know. Well, the next phase, after they finally get that, is conscious competence. What we mean by that is now they can do it, but they have to actually think about it. And then you move to the final stage of learning, unconscious competence, where you just totally forget that you ever had to learn it in the first place. You know what the problem is with us? And the reason why we get frustrated with people is because we exist here in stage four, And they're existing in stages one and two. We've totally forgot where we came from. We've totally forgot what it was like. You forgot what it was like not to know. You've forgotten the frustration of not being able to do. And so I'd say it this way. Remembering ignorance and inability enables influence. Remembering ignorance and inability enables influence. This is a general principle. Spiritually speaking, Paul is calling for us to remember 
stage one. Remember what it was like to not know. Remember what it was like to not be able to do. And to not even know that you needed to know something. The sinfulness of those around us should not frustrate us or or bring us to anger. But it should break our hearts. You don't yell or mock at the kid who doesn't know how to tie a shoe. Or at least you shouldn't. You don't huff and puff at the miscues of an autistic friend or family member. You don't scold the deaf person for not speaking more clearly. You don't push the blind person for stepping on your foot. Your heart is broken at their inability. Oh God, help us remember where we were so we can lead people to where they need to be. When they believe foolishness, like our world exploded into existence from nothing into perfect order and harmony, they can't help it. As they act on every perverse sexual urge and mangle their bodies to switch genders, they can't help it. As they pursue unbiblical agendas for our nation and advocate laws that will expressly defy the will of God, the Creator, they don't know any better. As they spew their venomous words about you and your family, they can't control it. As they waste their lives hoarding stuff and striving for personal significance, they can't do anything any different apart from the gospel of God our Savior. Conveyed in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. I know you ask me these questions, and I'm glad you ask. And you can ask as a lament, but you can't ask logically, because... Here's the question. Why, Justin, why aren't they more interested? Because they don't have a heart. Justin, I don't, why don't they understand? Because they don't have the mind. Why do they act that way? They don't have the volition, the capacity to do this apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Don't get frustrated at them. Be broken over them. Pray for them. And pursue them with the truth of the gospel. The doctrine of absolute inability, why it could seem so esoteric and and negative and harsh and impractical, doesn't harm our evangelism, it helps it. It kindles our compassion, it drives us to depend on Christ and the gospel alone and prayer. So, to be a kinder Christian, we need to look back. And remember our situation. But we're still in dangerous territory this morning, folks, if all we remember is our obligation and our situation. Because here's what could happen. Some of you could look back to what you used to be and think, well, I fixed myself. I made things better. I learned how to tie my shoes on my own. Why can't this kid learn how to tie his shoes on his own? I figured it out. I cleaned up my life. I pulled up myself by my own bootstraps. I made things work. And if all you have is obligation and situation, you still will not be able to capture the posture that is commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ toward the outsider. You must remember one more thing, and that is our salvation. Our salvation. We remember our obligation, our situation, and our salvation. And you see it in verses 4 through 7. And I could spend, folks, I could literally spend days talking about verses 4 through 7, but I'm not going to. Because I want you to capture the power of this condensed summary of the gospel in the flow of this particular text. I want you to see how verses 4 through 7 apply to verses 1 and 2 and 3. And so let's do this quickly. Look at verse 4, the 4a. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Paul's there. 
Notice God's kindness and His timing. This is all part of of one sentence. Goodness and kindness appeared when? While we were sinners. While we were the ones who were foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, that's when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared. By appeared. You notice he used that same word back in chapter 2. The appearing here is talking about the Christ event. Jesus Christ, when He came onto the scene in this world, became God's kindness incarnate. It took on flesh. He appeared. And, And when did He appear? Did He appear when we cleaned ourselves up? Did He appear once we figured it all out? No, He appeared while we were slaves to sin. Notice, when that appeared, verse 5, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So the timing wasn't only an expression of God's kindness, but even the initiative. Do you see how clear it is? He saved us. He saved us. And He clarifies it. He saved us not... Our works, not by works done by us in righteousness, not our attempts to make things right with God, but what was the motivation? His mercy. He did this by His mercy. God saves sinners. That's Packer's three-word summary of the Gospel. I love it. You want the Gospel in three words? God saves sinners. God, not man, saves, doesn't just make salvation possible, sinners, people who didn't deserve it. And that's the point of this text. God did it. He's he's clarifying. He's doing everything He can to clarify that we couldn't do this. How did He do it? Look at the second half of verse 5 on into verse 7. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace. Well, Paul's there. Notice the thoroughness that is so kind of God to to capture everything that we needed. And this was a a Trinitarian event. Yes, God planned it, but notice how the Spirit applied it and the Son purchased it. You see them all working together to accomplish our salvation. One of the most fundamental concepts of salvation in the book of Titus is that it has affected us internally. God's Spirit has come in and has cleansed us and made us something different than we were before. Do you notice that? He uses two different phrases to describe the same event. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, He cleansed our souls, that part of us that we cannot see, internal. He made it clean. In fact, He made it so clean that it was something new. Not just improved. Somebody ran into the side of our van door for the fourth time in the last three months. No kidding. And I think the first few times they just buffed it. But I saw the expense report this time. They did a full out replacement. Our lives just weren't buffed up. But they were replaced. We were made new. When when the Spirit came upon us, it made us a different entity than we were before, giving us the capacity to obey that we never had. And that's not the only thing that happened. But notice that it says that we were also justified by His grace. See, one part is just the, what I would call the, the, the practical, the, the ontological, but there was also a positional change that needed to play, take place because even if He cleaned up our life, what do we do with all the sins that we already committed? All the stuff that you did that had kindled God's wrath against you. It's great that you're new and improved, but what do you do about the old stuff? What do you do about the things in your past? And this is where he says, you've been justified by His grace. It's legal terminology, folks, that means acquitted, declared not guilty. The opposite of justification, by the way, is condemnation. You don't have that anymore. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what we enjoy? We enjoy His righteousness. In fact, the slate just isn't wiped clean, but we are positively declared righteous. When He looks at us, He sees the righteousness of His Son. This is a thorough and kind salvation, one that we did not deserve. 
And why? Why did he do all this? What was his grand design? Where was it all headed? Well, he describes that in the last part of verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, listen to this, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know what he had in mind? (laughs) You know where he was headed in all of this? He wanted us to be his heirs. He wanted us to receive all the benefits of being his children. Why did he send his son? Why did he die the death that you and I deserve to die? For our good. And so that as heirs, we would enjoy. He just wanted us to enjoy the confident expectation of eternal life. It's all good. It's all kind. Do you see the radical kindness of God here? In a world cursed by death, He wanted you to look past it with confidence and enjoy eternal life. This is extravagant kindness to the extravagantly undeserving. The timeless words of the Scottish preacher and hymn writer Horatius Bonar capture the thrust of this text well. You're going to hear this song in just a moment as we prepare for communion. But I want you to hear the words now. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers or sighs or tears can ease my awful load. Notice the contrast. Thy work alone, my Savior, can ease the weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Salvation is 100% of God alone. The Father planned it. The Son paid for it. The Spirit applied it. We did all the sinning. He did all the saving. That's kindness. What does this have to do with your kindness to others? What's the relationship of verses 3 through 7 to verses 1 and 2? How does this help you become a kinder Christian? It reminds you first and foremost that it's not by what their hands have done that could ever save their guilty soul. It's not what their toiling flesh has borne that can make their spirit whole. They, They don't deserve Kindness. Sinners don't deserve kindness. We didn't deserve kindness. Of course we don't deserve it. Let's get over that. Think I'm not even going to be nice to somebody unless they're kind to me. God didn't treat you that way and He doesn't intend for you to treat anyone else that way. See, this theological reality does a couple things. One, it informs our kindness. It is the, the paradigm by which we operate for other people. But here's the even better thing. It fuels our kindness. It's one thing to inform it and say, hey, you know what? This is what God has done, and you need to act like God. That's a pretty high standard. But here's the cool thing about those verses. It fuels it because we now have the capacity to obey that we never had before. We've got the clean slate. Yes, we've been declared righteous in Christ, but what's more important is we have the Spirit residing within us, enabling this type of behavior that otherwise would have been impossible. The gospel doesn't just guide us. It controls us. It sends us down the right path. It gives us the energy to move forward. And so we show undeserved kindness because we know undeserved kindness. Believe it or not, a few years ago, I faced a situation that sent me 
scrambling and made me feel more insecure than any other. It was fascinating because uh, it pertained to ministry. I, my life has been ministry. I've done a few other jobs. I've had some other experiences. But ever since the age of 17, I've been pursuing full-time vocational ministry in the pastoral realm. Went to college for that. Started doing it professionally at 20 years old. And so it was at 25, I was actually faced with one of my first major moments of scrutiny ministerially. Surprising. Because you would think that the ordination process would have been that for me, but the men who decided to ordain me just kind of asked me a few basic questions, didn't scrutinize me that much, just said, you seem to be a good guy, we're going to lay hands on you, we're going to ordain you as a pastor. But the seminary that I chose to go to didn't take things the same way. (laughs) There were a couple things going on. There were academic qualifications and spiritual qualifications. I was a little insecure academically. Not that my grades were that bad, but the school that I grew up in was just, it was not an accredited school. The school that I was headed to was accredited by the same institution that uh, validates USC and Stanford. So I was a little insecure academically. But even more importantly, I was actually insecure spiritually. It was fascinating. Because you think, oh, you're applying for grad school. This should just be an academic thing. But the application that I had to fill out actually walked through, listen to this, walked through the qualifications of a pastor in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Timothy 3, listed each of those out in their own words, and then I had to sign as to whether or not I felt I met those qualifications. Then I had to give a copy of it to my wife, and she had to check off that I met those qualifications. And then I had to give a copy of it to my pastor, and he had to check off that I met those qualifications. And then I had to give a copy of it to a former employer, and he had to check off that I met those qualifications. I just thought, man, how do they even have any students? (laughs) Of all the questions that were on the application, in light of my background, and I'll show my hand here, of the two ways that I presented to you at the beginning, I was more of the protectionist. I grew up staying away from sinners. There was one question that bothered me more than any other, and I didn't know if I would get in. And here was the question. Is your reputation in the secular community one of righteousness, moral character, love, kindness, generosity, and goodness? Now, I'll ask that question again in a moment, but... Let's be clear on what it's not asking. It's not asking, do they think you're okay? Do they think poorly of you? But they're asking, are you actively known by outsiders as a loving, kind, generous, and good man? They actually presumed that that was a a quality that was necessary for someone to be in pastoral office. Now, I understand that we're not applying for seminary today, but do you understand that this text is calling us to ask ourselves the exact same question? Titus 3, 1 through 7, shows us that this is not a pastoral question. This is not a non-profit organizational question. This is a personal question, and so again I ask it. Is your reputation and the secular community. One of righteousness, moral character, love, kindness, generosity, and goodness. If we answer that question honestly, the protection policy is not going to cut it. If we answer this question honestly, the antagonistic policy is not going to cover it. It is the kindness policy. Active kindness encapsulated in the gospel, putting it on display, drawing attention to the gospel by intentionally initiating goodness toward those who, like us, didn't deserve it. How do we do this? By remembering. Remembering our obligation. Who can you target with the kindness of God this week? By remembering our situation. 
With whom have you expressed frustration because you forgot your own sinfulness? Is there someone that you need to apologize to even today? And then finally, we must remember our salvation. He saved us.